good to see each and every one of you here with us today. And as you're seated and get comfortable, I would like to invite you to please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I have been the pastor of Blue Valley Baptist Church now for 12 years. And when I started my ministry with you a little over 12 years ago, the book that I chose to start our time out in was the book of Ephesians. And there was a reason for doing that. That wasn't just me playing rock, paper, scissors with the Bible and coming up with Ephesians. There was a reason that I chose Ephesians. Blue Valley had been through a very difficult time of transition, and they were kind of chomping at the bit to, to celebrate. And I had been through a difficult ministry season, and I was chomping at the bit to celebrate. And I thought, well, where can we find a book of the Bible where we can join together in celebration? And the book was the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians has widely been accepted as as, as one of the most beautiful in the Bible. In fact, um, uh, a Bible scholar from years gone by named William Barclay called it the queen of the epistles. And then a devotional writer named Ruth Paxson has called it the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Um, now, that doesn't mean it's, it's the book that speaks the most to me. The, the book, if I were to pick one that spoke the most to me, it would be the book of Colossians. I, I just love the book of Colossians. But I do admit that there is a majesty to this book that we cannot overlook. And if there is a Grand Canyon-like majesty to the book of Ephesians, then the scenic overlook for all of that majesty is in the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. The reason we have selected this particular passage to be in our series of messages called Bible 101, which looks at the passages that we believe subjective list, but uh, the passages which we believe that all Jesus followers should be familiar with is not because it's beautiful. We selected it because it does a wonderful job kind of almost subconsciously opening up for us the beauty of one of the most incredible truths about the nature of God in Scripture. And so we're going to spend time this morning kind of exploring it for, uh, for, you know, the detail of it, although that'll be done very quickly. And then at the end of the message, we'll stand back and see what's always been there, what you've seen but not noticed all your life, perhaps, about Ephesians chapter 1. So I hope you found Ephesians chapter 1, and after Paul does all of his normal introductions, he begins with these words in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want to I have our attention focus on that phrase, every spiritual blessing. What Paul is saying there is this. Every blessing that belongs to the realm of what we would call heaven belongs to us. He is saying that the vaults of heaven, and we can just imagine the vaults of heaven, the vaults of heaven have been opened to us. So all of heavenly power, all of heavenly wisdom, all of heavenly blessing has been 
opened to us, but you've also noticed that it has not been opened to us universally. In other words, it's not available for all. It has been opened, the vaults of heaven have been opened for all of those who are in Christ. That is the means by which all that belongs to heaven, and I want you to note here, it's completely unqualified. There's no yeah, but. Does anybody see in verse 3, but? No, not at all. Everything that heaven has to offer, all of the blessings of the heavenly places are ours in Christ. Now, that phrase in Christ is one of Paul's favorite descriptions of the Christian life. He uses it a lot in his writings, but the mother load of his use of it comes to us in the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. As a matter of fact, it's used, or a or form of it is used nine different times. So it's important that, that Paul communicates with us that as you think about your relationship with Christ, you think about it being in Christ. Now, several weeks ago, we were in John 15. And we saw how Christ described our relationship with him as his life being in us. And obviously, it's true. When we think about the life of Christ, it is in us. And we've talked about this from the book of Colossians, that, that the nature of the Christian life is the life of Christ in me being lived out of me so that my life actually becomes the life that Christ would have lived if he were me. So it's appropriate to think about the life of Christ being in me. But what Paul is saying here is, is that our life is actually in Christ. Both are true. Our life is actually in Christ. We are enveloped. We are brought into full union with Christ at the moment of salvation. And so, the, the vaults of heaven are opened to those are in, who are in Christ because when we have given our lives to Christ and we are therefore in Christ, we have been brought into full union with the owner of it all. You see that? We have been brought into full union with the owner of it all. So he begins this, this kind of beautiful overlook of the entire book by reminding us that because we are in Christ, because we have been fully integrated with Christ at the moment of our salvation, because we've been brought in union with Christ, full union with Christ, everything that belongs to heaven is ours, is ours. And then he does this. Look at Look at verse 4. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, ours, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, you're free to say, wow, after you go through all of that. There's a lot. It's like Paul takes a dictionary and goes, I'm just going to shake all the words out. I'm just going to shake all the words out. In fact, he does that in a way that's not readily obvious to us as we read English translations. 
Actually, Paul drives whoever his grammar teacher was nuts because verse 3 through verse 14, and I may have to go back and look, it may be 17, but verse 3 through 14 is one sentence in Paul's language. I mean, he's running on, he's commas, and he just, it's just, it's going, that's one sentence, but he's saying, I have something that is so rich that I need to, to unpack for you that I'm going to break the boundaries of grammar in trying to share it with you. Now, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. In fact, there's so much there that when I was preaching through this 12, 12 years ago, I took three weeks to go through the verses that I'm about to survey for you in just a few minutes, all right? But that's okay because I, I think I can do so in a way that helps us understand what Paul is up to. Paul is essentially doing three things. I'm a Baptist preacher. Of course, he's going to be doing three things. But he's legitimately doing three things here. First of all, he is saying why we are in Christ. Remember, he says we have all of these riches, all the vaults of heaven open because we're in Christ. He's saying first why we are in Christ. Second thing he is saying is what we actually have in Christ. And then third, he explains how it was provided. Right, so let's first think about why we are in Christ. And it's summed up in the words that begin the, the passage, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now let me share something with you that you may already know. Theologians have been in fistfights about what those verses mean for 2,000 years. And then let me say something to you that you may also already know. I'm not going to be able to fix it for you in this message, all right? If the Lord tarries another 2,000 years, theologians are going to be in fist fights about this. But in general, the debate falls into two different camps about what this means. First, there's the debate that might fall under the heading of what we would call the Reformed camp. Don't worry about why it's called the Reformed camp, it just is. The Reformed camp. And the Reformed camp would say that this choice, the, the biblical term for it is election of those who are in Christ, those who experience salvation. This choice resides entirely in God and before the foundation of the world, in his own purpose and in his own mysterious will, he elected those who would receive salvation. The other camp falls under, and this is a sloppy term too, but it's the best I could come up with. The other camp falls under the heading of free will. And, and the free will camp, by and large, believes that God made this choice before the, the foundation of the, the world, but he made this choice on the basis of his foreknowledge. In other words, he looked out because he knows all and saw the trajectory of human history, and he knew who would make the choice to follow him. And on the basis of that choice that he knows we will make before we were even living, he makes his choice for those who would uh, experience salvation. Now, the thing that everybody now wants to know <laughs> is, Derek, what do you think? <laughs> and uh, I think I'm not going to tell you. Um, <laughs> I I'm happy to talk with you about it. I'm not happy to talk to hundreds of people about it at once. All right, And the reason is, is because the moment I begin to unpack for you what I believe, you either are lazy and are going to say, well, I guess that's what I'm going to believe too, or you're going to agree with me and then just kind of be built up in your uh, pompous arrogance sitting out there, well, he, he's right because he believes like I believe it, or I'm going to say something that you don't believe at all and then you're going to be mad at me and you're going to be having a conversation with me the rest of this message that I'm not privy to, all right? 
So I'm not going to tell you. Happy to have a conversation with you about it. In fact, if you want to know what I believe about this, I'm teaching a theology class on Sunday nights beginning in September, and I will show all the cards I've got, okay? But the purpose of today is this, is to see where the agreement is. Remember, we're talking here about uh, why we are in Christ, and both the Reformed camp and the free will camp agree that we would not be in Christ if God had not granted that opportunity. Both agree that none of us have any merit or worth on our own to be in salvation. And if God did not do something, either in his own mysterious will, on his own, or on the basis of what he knew, if God did not do something, none of us would be in Christ. So the answer to the question, why are we in Christ in the first place, is because God allowed it. Everybody, all theological, all orthodox theological camps agree with that. Now, the next question then is this, what, what is it that we have in Christ? And that is unpacked for us in the last part of, of verse 4, where the part that picks up that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, as a result of being in Christ, that heavenly blessing is in part the blessing of being able to take on the character of Christ because our lives have been brought into full union with Him. Most of the time, we want to think about the, the blessings of heaven as only being those things that come later. In other words, I, I, I get to go to heaven, and I get to live forever, and there'll be no more pain, and there'll be no more sorrow, and we only think about the blessing of heaven as being that. But primarily what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1 is not the sweet by and by. He's talking about the very real present now and now. And, and, and as a result of being in Christ and being in full union with Christ, our lives then have the capacity to transcend and gain victory over sinfulness because His life is in us. In fact, He says it's inevitable. If you give your life to Christ, a process begins in you where your life begins to take on the character, the aroma, the fragrance, the, the life of Christ. And if you are one of those who sadly and very tragically mistakenly believes that all Jesus wants you to do is say some words to give you heaven later on and nothing here matters, you need to go back and read those verses. Because what these verses say is that if you've given your life to Christ, your life will begin to become holy and blameless like His. It's predestined. It's inevitable. So what do we have in Christ? What is the nature of this blessing that we are given? All heavenly power and, and wisdom and blessing. It's we begin to take on the life of Christ. And then the last thing these little uh, uh, flourish of verses say is, is how we have all of that. How is it that we're able to take on the life of Christ? And it's summed up for us in verses 7 through 12. Now, I won't go back and read that, but the word that crystallizes it or the phrase or the section of this that crystallizes how we have what we have in Christ, the blessing, His life, how we have it is the phrase, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of, the ESV says, trespasses, other verses other translations might say sins. Now, it's helpful to me, probably because of Miss Moore in eighth grade English class at Grandview Elementary in uh, Cherokee County, Oklahoma. I, 
I had to go through a K through eight school because I lived in the woods. But Miss Moore, uh, Miss Moore taught us that words have families. And so if, if I think about redemption, the grandfather of the word redemption is a word in Paul's language that means simply to loose, to loose. In fact, in Luke 3, 16, that word shows up where John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to loosen the sandal of the one who comes after me. The, the grandfather of the word redemption in Paul's language is a word that means to loose. And that word to loose gave birth to a word that had something added to it, the idea of being set free. Now, we can see that to loose is something like un untying one's shoelaces. But it began to take on the idea of untying shoelaces that had been tied together, of being, of being set free, the idea of being set free. And the way that that word shows up in our English translations, dominantly, is, is the word ransom, the idea of having something done so that we could set free. So to loose begat ransom. Ransom begats the word redemption. And the word redemption is a word that actually focuses on the ransom price, how much ransom had to be paid. And how much ransom had to be paid, the redemption price was the very blood of Jesus Christ. Because he shed his blood for us on our behalf. The sinfulness that kept us from the bolts of heaven, that kept us from being able to be in union with Christ, was completely take away, taken away. So in those verses, verses 4 through 12, we see why we uh, are in Christ, we see what we have in Christ, and we see how that was able to be given to us. And then we come to these words, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The focus there needs to be on that idea of the Holy Spirit being given to us as a guarantee. And, and that, that whole idea has just a, a very rich complexity to it. Most of our English translations actually translate it as the word guarantee, but the, uh, the Christian Standard Version translates it in a way I think is more helpful to us. It translates it as the word down payment. Down payment. So, the Holy Spirit, at the moment of our salvation, is given to us as a down payment. Now, think about why we needed a down payment. And here's why. Um, sometimes we don't feel very rich. Right? I mean, we, we understand that there's no qualification back in verse 3. That we are, are, are in Christ and therefore have the vaults of heaven open to us. Sometimes we don't really feel super rich. I mean, sometimes, man, God's present and things are rocking and rolling and I just feel him active and engaged in my life. And then sometimes I have no idea what he's doing. I mean, I'm going through some kind of trial, going through some kind of difficulty, have some kind of a crisis that has emerged in life. And those things can knock us off our edge and we can begin to not feel very rich. And now the down payment begins to make sense. The down payment of the Holy Spirit in us lets us know that when those moments come in life where you do not feel like you have the power and the wisdom and the blessing of heaven, when those moments come in your own Christian life where you are stumbling and falling on your efforts to become Christ-like and you actually kind of feel like you're going in reverse and not forward, remember 
that the very Holy Spirit of God was placed in you at the moment of your salvation and is your guarantee that what you are experiencing in part will be paid in full one of these days. And at that point in time, God's people go, Woo! That's rich. All of this is good. Now, here's the thing about Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. We right off the bat see those words about being chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And we just want to stay and stick there and we want to fight about that. And we get so wrapped up in all of that that we fail to step back from it to see what Paul is actually doing for us. Think with me about what we've seen. As it relates to our salvation, we have seen that the Father does something and that the Son does something and that the Holy Spirit does something. You see, Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 is one of the most fabulous scriptures in the Bible to point to when you are talking to someone about this difficult-to-get-your-mind-around belief called the Trinity, that there is one God, three persons, three persons, one God. Your God and my God is so majestic that, that we can never fully understand Him. And the thing that we can point to that highlights this mystery more than anything else is the aspect of God being three yet one. I've heard people say, you probably have too, if you try to explain it, you're going to lose your mind. If you try to explain it away, you're going to lose your soul. Because as we've just seen in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, all of the Godhead is active in our salvation. So let's think just for a moment about some kind of on-ramp to at least pretend we are moving down the road to understanding it. And, and some of you all right now are already trying to uh, do that in your mind. There's this video on YouTube called St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. All right? Now, don't look that up now because you're going to start laughing out loud as you read it. But I'd encourage you, after you take your afternoon nap, if you want to laugh about something, go to St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. It's hysterical, all right? I'm not going to do St. Patrick's Bad Analogies, but I am going to give you uh, one of these silver dollar words. You ready for it? Perichoresis. Perichoresis. P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. Perichoresis. And it is a theological term that is meant to help us in understanding the nature of the Trinity. And it basically carries with it the idea of mutual indwelling. Mutual indwelling. And it's based on some verses that we see in the Gospel of John. John 14, 9 through 11, Jesus says this, speaking uh, to, to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, as Philip has just asked, show me the Father? And here's where perichoresis kicks in. 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works, the miracles themselves. Mutual indwelling. We'll never be able to plumb the depths and the meaning and, and, and understand the, the Trinity. But the Trinity at its core affirms that there are three distinct persons, but the, the, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in each one. So, the, the Son is not the Father, but the Father and the Spirit dwell fully in the Son. And the, the Father is not the Son, but the Son and the Spirit dwell fully in the, the Father. And the Spirit is not the Father, but the Son and the Father dwell fully in the Spirit. They are three distinct persons, but all e equally fully God. You say, I don't know what that means either. Frankly, I don't either. But it does let us know that there is a divine mystery to all of this. And so stepping back, stepping back and thinking about our salvation, here's where we fill in our blanks and we go. All right, first, this passage of Scripture reminds us that God the Father grants life. God the Father grants eternal life. We've already said that there is a mystery to what it means when Paul writes, the Father chose us, either by His will, if we believe one way, or based on His knowledge of what we would do if we believe another. And that this has been debated for 2,000 years, and if the Lord tarries, we're going to debate this for 2,000 more. But what we can all agree on is that without the mercy of the Father granting us life by choosing us, none of us would have life. Next. God the Son obtains life. We can all agree that without the blood of Jesus shed for us, redeeming us from our sin, there would be no possibility of having eternal life. It is by the giving of the Son's life that He obtained for us our eternal life. God the Son obtains life. Finally, God the Spirit sustains life. We can all agree that what keeps us in the life that God the Father granted us and what the God the Son obtained for us is the, God of, uh, is the Spirit of God in us, sustaining us. None of us could have life with God without Him granting it to us, obtaining it for us, and none of us could keep it without God keeping it for us. You say, okay, well, good theology lesson. I don't know what that does for me tomorrow, and frankly, if that's your thought, I don't know how I can help you. Because if you'll stop and think about it, what we think about God, the God we worship, orders our life. How we conceive of God orders our life. And the most fundamental aspect of our relationship is the relationship itself, it's salvation. And so if I approach life with the knowledge that I worship a God of mercy who granted me life when I didn't deserve it, and that I worship a God of love who obtained for me a life that I could not obtain for myself. And that I worship a God of power who keeps me to himself to the very end. Then my life 
tomorrow is going to be of a completely different character than what it would be otherwise. I approach life as a relentless optimist. Not because there aren't bad things that happen. I mean, we, we've had two church members in the past 48 hours pass away, and John and I spent the first bit of time that we had together this morning trying to work out logistics for a funeral. We have others who are not doing well. When I was finishing up my sermon prep this morning, my mother texted me and said that my Uncle Marvin uh, probably just had days left. I, I am not Scarlett O'Hara and batting my eyes and thinking everything's going to be good tomorrow, but I am a relentless optimist because I have a God of mercy that I worship and a God of love that I worship, a God of power that I worship, and I have an active life with him. That's why I'm a relentless optimist. That's why doctrine makes a difference. And that's why this passage was chosen, to remind us that there is no God like our God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.